0: Hi, you are listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. You will be hearing a sermon from Pastor Jared Oren. So without further ado, here he is. This morning, we are technically still in the marriage series, but I'm going to veer off course a little bit, if that's okay with you. And we're going to focus this morning a little more broadly on family. Whether you are married or not... Whether you have children or not, we have all grown up in a family. And our families have marked and shaped us. The family unit is one of the most significant influencers in who we become as people. This morning, I want to talk about rediscovering life in our families. Life that God truly intends for us. One of the books that's really influenced me is this book, Making Room for Life, by Randy Frazee. And I want to share a little bit from his introduction. And he kind of paints the picture for his family, what life looks like. And maybe you can resonate with some of this. I envision a life that is not as hectic. We always seem to be on our way to the next place never really arriving at a destination. I envision a life with less time in the car and more times for walks. I envision a life where there is time for work and a time to play. I love to work, but I just want to keep it from getting offside. I want to play more, but I think after all these years, I've forgotten how. I envision a life with less fast food in the car and more spreads of home cooking with family and friends. Shoving burritos in our mouths while driving can't be what God had in mind for us. We have lost the beautiful art of sharing a meal together. I envision a life of less accumulation and more conversation. I already have way too many manuals on how to care for the stuff I bought. Plus, people have to be more interesting than things. I don't think most of us really know for sure. I don't know how all that sits with you, but I believe our families these days are running at a pace that is out of whack. And it leaves us empty and struggling to experience life. We have lost sight of some of the key values that God wants for us and our families. And this morning, we're going to look at a short passage from the book of Jeremiah to help us with this. At this point in the history of Israel, the people of God are a mess. They were often a mess, actually. They were constantly under the threat of attack from other nations. But right now, more than this, Israel is a spiritual mess. Things are out of whack in their relationship with God. And God has something to say about it. So God calls a young man named Jeremiah to be his spokesman. In Jeremiah 1, God makes it clear what Jeremiah's life is going to be about. God says to him, see, today I appoint you over nations, and kingdoms, to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah was called to speak into the mess that Israel was in and invite them out of the things that were destroying them and back to rebuilding their lives centered in God. In Jeremiah 2, God is speaking. Through, through Jeremiah to Israel. And this is what God says to them. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins, They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I want to just briefly walk through this verse by verse. So starting in verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. It was almost unprecedented in human history for a people ever to forsake the gods of their ancestors. Even the pagans who worship gods, who are powerless and really not gods at all, still remain loyal to them. God is calling out Israel for being fair-weather worshipers. And that is really putting it quite lightly. There's almost a sense of bewilderment that God is expressing with his people here. Why would anybody take something of great value and worth and exchange it for something worthless? Verse 12, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. This verse takes what's going on to the next level. Back in Deuteronomy, when God makes a covenant with Israel, he calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses. At a wedding ceremony, witnesses are friends and families who will hold the the couple accountable to their vows. God has called the heavens as his witness. And the heavens here are called to shudder and be appalled with great horror. Why? Because Israel has violated and broken the covenant. There's a movement from bewilderment and surprise to now tragedy and horror. And verse 13 spells out the violations of the covenant. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and they have dug their own broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is giving his people a one-two spiritual punch here on how they have violated their relationship with him. God does not tiptoe around our mess. He goes right after us because he wants what is best for us. The first punch is that Israel has forsaken God. God. The people of Israel haven't just forgotten about God and been absent-minded like a husband forgetting his anniversary. God says, they have forsaken me. They've completely turned their back on God and lost sight of the best thing they had going for them. And God refers to himself here as the spring of living water. My people are missing out on the true source of life. They have no idea what they are doing. Do you understand that God always wants to give life to us, his people? He's a good father, and he has our best interests in mind. His motives and intent are always good. And living water, real life, can only be found in him, in him alone. The second punch to Israel is this. Not only are you not taking hold of me as your true life, but you are building broken cisterns that will leave you empty and thirsty. I think this is really hard for us to understand the imagery here. Living in a country where you're never 100 feet away from a drinking fountain or a bathroom, We have on-demand access to flowing water. But back in Israel's day, it was hard for them to find water. The best cisterns, the containers for water they had, were very liable to cracks. Even when they're able to hold, the water that was collected was tainted from the soil and the clay. And often had worms in it. It was really dirty, disgusting water to drink. A couple of weeks ago, I was cleaning out my gutters, which needed to be done. And there was debris that was blocking flowing water. Do you know how nasty, stagnant water is? It smells like sewage more than anything else. And God is saying here to Israel and to us, you can have fresh, flowing, cool water from a spring, but instead you choose to drink from broken vessels of nasty water here's the main point of this text the people of israel gave up everything they had to get nothing really at all all in for nothing it would be like someone today betting all the money they had on the chicago bulls to win the 2016 nba finals I understand the bulls are not in the finals. Sorry to point that out to you. But that's the point. You're giving up everything for something that's guaranteed to leave you broke and empty. How crazy is that? The mandate placed on Jeremiah's life was to be a spokesman for God. How God wanted to destroy the cracked cisterns in Israel And call them back to putting their hope in a relationship with him. And today we're not much different than Israel. We chase after and run after and put value on so many things that can't and won't produce the life God wants for us. We choose broken cisterns that won't hold. Like Israel, we give up a lot and often are left feeling empty and struggling to experience life. And God wants so much more for us. He really does want to give us life, life in him and life according to his ways. As Jeremiah talks about destroying and rebuilding, I think about a home remodeling project. The first step of a home remodeling project is to demolish to demo everything that you are replacing that always looks like a lot of fun on TV. I've always wanted to do that. Take a sledgehammer and put it through drywall. Make a bunch of holes and rip it out. There's something that men enjoy about that. When I think about our families today and how they've been built, I believe there is some demo work that God wants to do in us. It might not be as fun as demoing a wall, but it's necessary. God needs to uproot and destroy some of the old patterns and beliefs that are taking away from our spiritual vitality and life in our families. So for the rest of the sermon, we're going to walk through three areas in our individual and family life that I really believe need some demo work and rebuilding that God wants to do in us. And the first one is demoing our understanding of success. Demoing our understanding of success. How do you define success? That's a very important question for you to think about. How you answer that question will no doubt reveal what your life revolves around. A few years ago, a memory from my high school days kind of came to mind. And as I reflected on this moment, I realized how much it shaped my view of success early on in my life. I played tennis in high school. For York High School, go Dukes, or York Dorks is how many people would call us. And one day, we were driving in the team van. I think we were going to a tennis meet. And I'm in the van with a bunch of my teammates, and I'm the most quiet and most reserved kid in the van. So I'm not saying anything whatsoever. Out of the blue, our tennis coach, a guy named Coach Sir, about six feet six, tall, very lengthy fellow, out of the blue, he doesn't talk to me, he starts talking about me to the other teammates. And he's saying stuff like, Jared is going to make it someday. You watch and see. And he went on to talk briefly about how successful I would be in this life. With The subtext is, I'm going to make a lot of money. It had nothing to do with my tennis career. I can guarantee you <laughs> that. And I sat there in that moment just shocked and speechless It was a very weird moment for me. But part of me in my heart was like, yes, that's right. I'm going to make it someday. You all watch and see. Please understand, I don't share that moment to brag whatsoever, because in his eyes, I I did not make it whatsoever. (laughs) But it's a moment that really shaped me as a young man. I realized how much of my view of success was marked in that very moment. I went off to college with that ideology. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make a lot of money and be successful. I believe that moment built a broken cistern in my life, in my view of success. What does I'm going to make it look like for you? Is it lots of money? Is it a nice house? Is it a sports car? Is it a freedom to shop and buy whatever you want? Is it a job title? A certain degree? People's admiration or envy? And for those of you who are parents, how are you shaping your kids' view Of success. What do you praise in your kids? Or better yet, what do you get really upset at in your kids? Is it their grades, their sports achievements, their musical talent, their behavior? We need to be incredibly mindful of how we are holding up success in our life. And what are those things that we esteem and value? in our own lives, and in our family. God needs to continue to do some demo work in us and invite us more and more to his standards of what success looks like. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives his disciples this surprising invitation to life with him. And I believe this helps us answer what success looks like in Jesus' eyes. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? The economy of success in God's kingdom does not involve accumulation of power, prestige, and possessions, but a willingness to lay aside yourself and lose your life for Christ. What does this mean practically, though? Practically, it means we are called to lives of sacrifice for God and others. God wants us to rediscover life in him through kingdom sacrifice rather than than the emptiness of worldly success. For those of you who are intent on following Jesus, God will call you and your family to a life of growing sacrifice. It will cut against the grain of culture and how you use your time and your resources, what your family schedule looks like. Of course, it won't be easy, but you will find life according to Jesus. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. In the world's cracked cistern of how success is built, you will always come up empty with the pressure to gain and to be more. But as you follow Christ and laying down your life in sacrifice, God promises that you will find true life. You will experience God as living water. A few years ago, Yvonne and I spent a season kind of thinking and praying about what do we want our family values to be about? It took us a while to kind of pray and soar through that. We came up with three things that we really believe defines our family. We created this plaque that kind of hangs in our dining room. The last one on the plaque is, we will give ourselves to the selfless and loving pursuit of others. This is an area where I truly admire my wife, Yvonne. She inspires me because I know better than anybody else, how she lives out this value in our family. Week in and week out, I see how she lays aside herself and sacrifices to love other people. And I know it's not always easy for her, but I see how God is at work in her and how much she wants to honor Christ. And it inspires me to follow Jesus more. As your life unfolds and you mature as a disciple, God will continue to take you to deeper levels of sacrifice for yourself and for your family that will center on loving him and loving other people. And the promise is you will find and rediscover your life as you lay it down for Jesus. Don't be fooled by the broken cistern of success this world will offer you and your family. But let God continue to show you the value of sacrifice for him and his kingdom. The second area of demo work, demo the role that children play in the life of your family to demo the role that children play in the life of your family. I know I'm going after a sacred cow maybe here. No doubt, our children are a gift and blessing from God. I love my kids with all my heart. But what role should children play in the life of a family? I believe God wants us to step back, and see if there's some demo work that needs to be done by him. One story that always gets me in the Bible is when God calls Abraham in Genesis 22 to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had waited for years for them to conceive and for Isaac to be born. And the promised child finally arrives, and they are filled with incredible joy as God has been faithful to their promise. And then Genesis 22 happens. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moria, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. It says that God is testing Abraham, but what he is calling Abraham to do seems a bit extreme. It doesn't make sense to me. It probably didn't make sense to Abraham either. But what this story teaches us is that God is in charge of your child's life and story not you. Too often, I think we take on more responsibility and forget that God is in control of our kids. We don't own our children. We are called to a sacred stewardship of them. To care for them and love them, yes, but ultimately to raise them to be who God wants them to be. Abraham here was tested by God, and he put God first, even when it didn't make sense. It was more important for him to follow God than to spare the life of his son. Again, this story marks and moves me as a father. and calls me to really reflect how willing am I to surrender my kids back to God. I'm very concerned for us these days that we are building our families backwards. Instead of God first, marriage second, and children third, we are putting kids first, marriage second, and giving God all the leftovers. And I want to point out two brief things that I believe will help us to put God first in the life of our families, especially as it involves our children And the first one relates to our family schedule. And I'm going to hopefully create a lighthearted moment. I'm going to quote Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. He says, Babies are the worst roommates. They're unemployed. They don't pay rent. They keep insane hours. Their hygiene is horrible. If you had a roommate that did any of the things babies do, you'd ask them to move out. I get it. Once a baby enters the picture, it changes the life of a family. There is no doubt about it. But it shouldn't change our values. I get that early on a baby's sleep and eating schedule is important, but should it be the dominating factor in how you build your family life and schedule? I get there are tons of extracurricular activities that you can put your child in. If you open up a park district catalog, it is overwhelming the options that are available to our kids these days. What is your motivation for signing up your child for an activity? And how much is too much? Our schedules become awfully crowded with our kids' activities. There's no margin for family life together and for even God. Yvonne and I have agreed to limit our kids' sports activities to one per child at a time. And we both love sports, and it would be easy to run wild with that, but we know what it does to the life of a family, these extracurricular activities. What does your family schedule reflect about what you value? Think about that. Reflect on that. Talk about that as a couple. The second thing is learning to invite God into the everyday life of your family. And this isn't rocket science. This doesn't have to be very complicated. One thing Yvonne and I do is we try to bookend our days with our kids in prayer. Before school or while we're driving them to school, we pray for each of our children. And beyond just praying for God to protect and bless them, but praying that they would learn to follow Jesus, that they would love other kids in their class. They would be brave and courageous when they're afraid. They would remember that God is with them, no matter what. And if there's a big event like a sports game, we try to pray for our kids and ask that they would honor God in everything. Another important thing, I believe, is meal times. In our crazy schedules, family meals together easily get crowded out. And I understand when the kids are young, family meal times are not pleasant. But as they get older, I believe the table is an important time where your family culture is formed, where you talk about your life and share the events of the day. And as a couple, that you ask, God, what are you doing in the life of my child? How can I come alongside them and bless them and pray for them and walk with them? May we recapture the importance of family meals together. There's so much more that could be said. But our children need us to take the lead in how we build our families. Too often we are building things backwards and we miss out on the true life with God at the center of our families. Remember the example and faith of Abraham. Will God be first in your family? Will you be a steward of your children? Will you surrender your kids to God and acknowledge that He is in charge of their stories? Not you. There is life and freedom when we put God first in the life of our family and our schedule. The final thing is demoing the primary purpose of your job, to demo the primary purpose of your job. On Sundays, I don't think we talk enough about the marketplace and the demands that are on you, who have a career and work outside the home. It's been a long time since I've been in the corporate world, but I know there are many challenges, especially for men. Work moves beyond what you do, but it can spill over and shape so much your identity and who you are as a man. It's a place where you spend a majority of your week and becomes the main storyline in your life. One of the unchecked dangers for us in our careers is that our jobs become primarily about provision over anything else. Of course, practically, I understand why this happens. You get paid for what you do. And that paycheck or direct deposit, it pays the bills. And you keep going at your job because you need to pay the bills. And similar to the last point And how we as parents take on too much responsibility, and how we raise our kids, I think we do a similar thing in our careers. We take on too much responsibility for provision when it really is God's job. We take on more of a burden than required. And it feels like it is up to us to provide for our families. Throughout Scripture, though, God makes it very clear that He is named the provider, not us. Matthew 6 is one example. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. We can easily get trapped in the cracked cistern that I need to provide for my family. I got to work to pay the bills. But this text is reminding us that clothes and food and the needs of your family, ultimately God is in charge of, of providing. Your responsibility is to work hard, yes, and to be faithful to honor God in your work. And trust me, I have struggled with this a lot in my own life. Time and time again, I take on too much worry and responsibility for provision. When the invitation to me and to you is to be faithful to seek God first, and to trust that he will provide. There there is a freedom here that God is inviting us to. God is saying, it's not up to you. It's really up to me. Don't hear me wrong here. Your job matters. God has placed you where you're at for reasons beyond just making money, though. And God needs to do some demo work in us. That the primary purpose of our jobs is not provision, but it's about calling. Let me explain the difference. God has created you as a unique person with gifts and talents and passions. And out of that uniqueness, He is inviting you to a greater purpose with your work beyond merely collecting a paycheck. God wants you to discover life in him through embracing your calling. Calling is about being faithful to who God has made you to be. And calling is about serving others. And I think this quote from Tim Keller is very helpful. Our daily work can be a calling only if it is reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. Your job is an assignment from God to serve others. You have an opportunity to be around people and to influence them through your service and your love and reflecting the heart and life of Jesus to them. This could be in very direct ways. For teachers, they get an opportunity to shape the lives of students. For a doctor, him or her gets to attend to the physical needs of a patient. But I get many of you work a desk job, so it can be harder to see how does this apply, this idea of calling. In your desk job, you have the opportunity to serve and love the people you're around, whether it's clients or customers or coworkers. God has put you in those people's lives for a reason. Will you go to your job each day with a heart to serve others and ask God to use you to impact the lives of those around you? And I get in the daily grind, it's hard uh, to be reminded of this vision and purpose. And that's why we need one another to keep each other accountable, to talk about our work be more than collecting a paycheck, but really as an opportunity to serve and love others and to embrace your calling, which God has given you. We can't forget, though, that God is the one who provides. You are called to trust him and be faithful to the calling that he has placed on your life. You will find life and joy and freedom as you discover your calling to serve others in your work. As I conclude, I want to give us all just a next step challenge for your family over the summer. And the praise team, you guys can begin to make your way forward. I want to encourage you to take a next step by finding a way to serve together as a family. This summer. Serving is a great way to incorporate all these values of sacrifice, of putting God first, and embracing our callings. And if you have children, maybe just start with asking your kids, kids, how can we serve together as a family? I tried that with my son yesterday, and I didn't get too far, so I'm going to keep working at it. And if you don't get far with your children, I mean, just lay it before the Lord And pray together about it. And ask God to open a door. Whether it's in your neighborhood. Maybe serving other families in your neighborhood. Or maybe there's an elderly person during the hot summer months just to check in on them. To ask God to open a door for you to serve as a family. And I want to give you a heads up in our retreat, which is two weeks away. A Saturday morning at our retreat, the whole retreat theme is being called out. We're going to talk a lot about how God wants us to make a difference in the world. And on Saturday morning, we're going to have an outreach expo. We're going to have about 10 organizations represented so we can connect with them and learn about ways to serve in our local community. But as a family, have fun this summer. But take a next step to get out of your comfort zone and find a way to serve. And after you serve, talk about it as a family. What was hard? What was awkward? And parents, be honest with your kids. Share your struggle with them. And talk about how can you integrate what you learned through the serving into your everyday family life together. You know, preparing this message has been good for my own soul because I realize how often family operates on what seems to be the treadmill of life. We keep going and going without thinking about what we're doing. And hopefully this message will encourage you to step off the treadmill for a moment and evaluate what does your family life really say about what you value Remember the invitation that God gave Israel through the words of Jeremiah. Our God is living water. God wants us to experience and know life through him and how we build our families. And many of you might be doing great on this and receive affirmation from God in the ways that your family is really living out these values. But for many of us, God needs to do some demo work in us. And don't be afraid of the work that God needs to do in you. Be open to how he he might want to work in new ways in your family. And never forget that he wants what's best for you. He wants to give us life. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would not just let us be with our broken cisterns God that you would come gently and strongly and invite us out of the things that we tend to value so much that at the end of the day just leaves us empty and struggling to find life God, give us fresh eyes to see where le- real life is found. Teach us about the way of sacrifice. That following Jesus is truly about laying down our life for you, to rediscover it. And God, you have modeled that through your Son, who gave up everything so that we can have a relationship with you. So we thank you for your sacrifice for us. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit lives and reigns in us, so we are not left alone to try to muster sacrifice in our own strength. But your Spirit will truly empower us. And God, we thank you for the kids that you have blessed us with, they truly are a gift from you. And God, we want to honor you in how we raise our kids. We pray that you would forgive us for how often we get things backwards. We let our children take center stage in the life of our family. We pray this morning that you once again would take that center stage. And help us to be able to surrender our kids back to you and entrust them into your care. And God, thank you for the many careers that are represented in this room. And the men and women that work very hard at their jobs to honor you, to provide for their families. But God, may we remember that our job ultimately is a calling from you. And I pray that you would give people a fresh vision for their jobs this morning. That they would work with excellence and diligence, but also would look at how they can serve others and be led by you to make an impact for Christ in their workplaces. God, I pray that you would come and empower your people with this. God, may we believe once again that you are enough. Inspire us, lead us in our community groups and our relationships. May we strengthen one another to remind each other that you are enough and you always will be. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.